Welcome, my friends, to the View from the Front. Blessings to you from wherever you're joining me. My name is Stan, and this is the October 26th edition. If you've never listened before, every week I do three things. I cover hot spots happening around the world. I attempt to unite our country, and I always share a few words of encouragement at the end. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. It's going to be a great show. I thought I would begin with just three different kind of interesting tidbits slash updates before we get to all the news. Of course, we will have plenty of news about Israel, everything happening there, as well as Ukraine, and we'll see if we don't even get into some other stuff. But I wanted to, before we got into too much heavy stuff, let's start with just a few lighter notes. Let's begin with a personal realization that I had this week, which I shared on social media, but I know a lot of you all don't uh, follow me on social media. And so I I think it's just kind of hit me, the dangers of ambition. And so I thought I would just share what I shared on social media. Uh, And I wrote, I am still growing and moving forward in my restarted faith journey. And one thing that is increasingly becoming clear to me is that my ambition, which has been astronomical and almost off the charts, has been leading to all kinds of serious frustration and disappointment. I know, I know, it's taken me almost 30 years to learn this, or maybe more like 46. Also, in this line of thinking, I am almost done trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. It's now more like, what does God want me to be? (laughs) This is weird and strange and awesome. So that's kind of the message I shared a few days ago. But I really am. Hopefully that summed up my thoughts pretty well. But I realize, you know, my entire life I've tried so hard to almost be great, to achieve at super high levels in the Marine Corps. Later in college, I tried to do that really fast. I went to summer school every single year. I was done in like three and a half years while never working less than 20 to 30 hours. Plus, I was married Plus, I started a small business on the side. It's kind of a long story, but I was selling furniture, but I ended up kind of starting a side business with a friend that we were assembling furniture on the weekends as well, and I was just insanely ambitious. And then I became a reporter, and after a couple of years of that, wasn't too happy with some things. Ended up launching a newspaper at the age of 27 because I was ambitious, had no kids, thought, why not? Got bought in, buy-in from the wife at the time. And then, you know, after all that ends, after nine years of really hard struggle, all-out effort, very few vacations in that time. Again, very few vacations, very low income, just chasing the dream, hoping it would eventually pay off, hoping that I would basically drive out another newspaper, a competing newspaper. Had Had I driven that out, then it probably would have been more profitable. But of course, at the time, I had no ideas that Newspapers were definitely going away. Facebook takes off. So by 2013, I realized that this was a complete waste of time. And so I close the newspaper. I do lots of day jobs to try to get caught up on my taxes and other financial obligations. I write a bunch of books and I'm like, I'm going to make it as an author. And I mean, I'm going all out. And I've pretty much been doing that for almost 10 years. Waking up early, staying up late, just chasing the dream 
Then I launched the podcast a couple years ago. I've got some sub stacks out there, obviously a political one, a religious one. I got this one, and I've just been going, going, going. And then, of course, last November, the restarted faith journey begins. And I'm just realizing now that, man, I've been chasing all of this stuff. Maybe even money, but definitely ambition, maybe money, maybe influence. I'm not sure. All those things. And it's like, man, I have killed myself trying to do all this. And for what? I've got a great family. I've got a good job now. And I'm just realizing that, man, Stan, like, just relax. It's not easy for me to do. I'm kind of wired really tight. Probably most tight, most tightest wired person you will ever meet. I am not good at learning how to calm down. And um, so anyway... But I'm realizing that ambition is a dangerous drug and you chase it and you work and you pursue it and it does not always treat you well. And so just trying to say, you know what, I mean, I don't really need anything. And so I still think I want to make some kind of impact. So it's more like, what does God want? Where where am I supposed to take all this stuff? I'm not real sure. Maybe I'll never know. Right now, though, I'm enjoying the podcast. Still enjoy writing and doing all those things. I'm just going to take my foot off the gas some. And if it grows, it grows. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I've learned that I've tried as hard as I can for years, obviously. And you have limited ability on what you can actually pull off as far as how fast you get somewhere. And so I'm increasingly realizing that, you know, God is in control and wherever he leads... That's where I'm meant to be. All of this was meant to happen. And it is what it is. But So that's the first kind of deep thought. Now the second thing that's interesting, the second thing I wanted to share before we get into the news comes from a social media post that was getting shared pretty widely, started kind of going viral. And it involved the book that was written about Mitt Romney, which has been pretty well reviewed. I haven't read it yet. But just reading this makes me half want to. But Romney is describing the recent trajectory of the GOP. And this person topped up a few paragraphs from the book. Again, the name, uh, the book is about Romney. It's written by McKay Coppins. And here was the quote. This is Romney talking. The GOP was shedding thoughtful people, considerate people, people who love others at an unsustainable rate. What remained in the party was a core of angry, resentful individuals and a collection of institutions intent on keeping them that way. You don't see words like considerate and love used much in political analysis, but this quote captures the core sentiment and resentfuls, um, I apologize, the core sentiment and core fear of so many who once voted or tended to vote Republican and now feel completely foreign in the GOP. It's not just the policy stances. It's the quick and utter abandonment of principles and character. All traces of empathy, thoughtfulness, and love are demonized and replaced with anger and resentment. 
And I saw that. So I saw this post and I thought, my word, that is completely the perfect description of the party as it has gone off of the rails. And I know lots of people are increasingly abandoning the party because there is just no kindness in it. Like none at all. Just absolutely no kindness at all. That sounds mean, but I pretty much stand by those words. And even when you look at the stance on abortion, there's just this desire to punish and threaten. There's no concern with a woman's health. There's no concern with just any of the things that just a thoughtful person, even if you were on the side of life, there's just very little thought or concern about helping maybe single moms who are young, who maybe don't want to make that decision. It's just, all you see is the cruelty. It's loud and it's dominant. It's a dominant part of the party, which is why the party is slowly but surely dying until it can regain its footing back to what even George Bush used to call the compassionate conservatives, just some level of kindness, some level of, you know, where is the party that doesn't attack people like Mitt Romney or John McCain who vote their conscience, who vote how they feel on an issue? Where's that party? It's gone. I don't even know where it is. I don't even know if it'll ever come back. It's going to be a while for sure, but really thought those words by Mitt Romney just summarized it well. That's where the GOP has unfortunately gone, and it has unfortunately increasingly began affecting our country. And sadly, as we have this new speaker, I really worry that it's going to affect places like how we fund and help Ukraine defend itself. I hope I'm wrong on that, but it's definitely... I feel like it's in its dying gasp, this party on the right, until it can recalibrate itself and find that love that I know is there somewhere. But until it gets to that point, it's going to cause more damage, I'm afraid. But I try to stay optimistic about these things. But I really wanted to share those words from Senator Mick Romney. I thought those were pretty well said. And then the final thing I wanted to share before we get too deep into the news comes out of the United Kingdom. And this was something that I had to fact check because I didn't even believe it at first. But out of the United Kingdom, the Royal Navy is ending its century-old tradition of having Chinese servants on warships amid fears that they could be forced to spy for Beijing And I read that and I thought, there's no way this is true. It is. You can look it up. Lots of news sources. So the Navy, the Royal Navy, since like 1930-something, has been using Chinese, basically servants. People jokingly call them slaves. But they, for whatever reason, the United Kingdom apparently cannot do their own laundry on ship. It's really just so odd to me. And the mockery online has been... (laughs) funny and horrendous and also funny and true 
Because sometimes the United Kingdom just reminds you that sometimes they seem sophisticated, and then sometimes you see these just imperial traditions. And it isn't just the queen or the king. You see things like this, and you're like, man, like, what a bunch of just... Uh, what what's I don't even know the word. Is it arrogant? What a bunch of uppity people <laughs> to refuse to do their own laundry and have these Chinese servants do their laundry. And people were laughing because the funniest part of this is, and I shouldn't beat up on the United Kingdom too much. They're strong allies, and this is all in good fun. But the funny part of it is they're not going to replace them with sailors in the Royal Navy doing it themselves. No, they're going to use people from Nepal. Now, if you don't know, there have been for probably a century as well, but certainly decades, amazing fighters out of Nepal called the Gurkha. And their traditions, I could talk about them for a long time because I've studied them and it's an amazing story in itself. But it's just crazy. People are laughing online that it's it's like you can't. <laughs> you're not even totally taking a step forward. And and this is I'm using the words of other people on social media. But they said you're still gonna, you know, use people that are not British to do the laundry. That you almost have this like such a long tradition of being an empire and being better than others countries that are smaller and less sophisticated that you're still too good to do your own laundry so that's the joke i promise you i'm not making it up look it up but on more serious note the royal navy is increasingly concerned in fact their intelligence agents mi5 the chief said that china's trying to steal nuclear secrets and so they are getting rid of these servants and the craziest part is some of these guys have been doing this for like 30, 35 years. And it goes into some of the details about people they're laying off. They've laid off this one-fourth Chinese. Like they go in the details about one of them in the a story you can find in the Telegraph. This guy gets dismissed. He's been doing it for 39 years, washing pressing uniforms, uh, cleaning the white tablecloths for the officers. Uh, they got rid of this guy because his family lives in Hong Kong. But again, it's it's kind of just a crazy story that the UK, just a reminder probably partly why we decided to break away from them, because we're just, we share our common roots, but even though America isn't perfect, it you just, it's, we've got some rich people, but even our rich would probably not feel real comfortable having others do that. It's just such a power move, but such a old-fashioned, just like I said, uppity thing. But that's the third thing. So we had to get some light stuff out because we are going to get into some deep stuff. And unfortunately, that news isn't all good. But I will do my best to share the news as I do every week. I try not to ramp up the fear like all the other media companies do with their flashing graphics and their explosions and will the war expand and on and on you guys know i do it differently and i think that's partly why the show has been growing so i really appreciate all the new listeners but we'll get right into that news now so i want to start the news coverage this week with two of the biggest 
national security situations that are going on. Those two are obviously Israel and Ukraine. And I'll begin by sharing just a bit of President Biden's speech from a week or so ago. Many have said it was his best speech to date. Even the host on Fox News, Britt Hume, said it was one of President Biden's best speeches. Let me just share what was said by President Biden before we get into the rest of it, because he really says this better than even I could. Conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Hamas' stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields, and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of them. Meanwhile, Putin denies Ukraine has or ever had real statehood. And just two weeks ago, he told the world that if the United States and our allies withdraw, military support for Ukraine would have, quote, a week left to live, but we're not withdrawing. Driving home this very similar and same point is a Republican from the Republican side of the House. This clip I'm about to share is from Senator Mitch McConnell. He's the minority leader of the U.S. Senate. And again, I'm sharing these two clips because with the new House Speaker selected, funding for Israel and Ukraine faces a real uphill fight in the next week or so, or maybe weeks. I'm not sure how all of this will have play out and evolve, but it is very, very important for Ukraine and also for Israel, but certainly for Ukraine that these funding bills get approved. So these, again, this again is the words of Senator Mitch McConnell. Ukraine assistance. Let's, let's talk about where the money's really going. A significant portion of it's being spent in the United States in 38 different states, replacing the weapons that we send to Ukraine with more modern weapons. So we're rebuilding our industrial base. That's what President Biden's seeking to do. It's, it's correct. No Americans are getting killed in Ukraine. We're re rebuilding our industrial base. Uh, the Ukrainians are destroying the army of one of our biggest rivals. I have a hard time finding anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful that they're defending themselves. And also the notion that the Europeans are not doing enough. They've done almost $90 billion. They're housing a bunch of refugees who escaped. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, our NATO allies in Europe have done quite a lot. You sound like you have a lot in common with President Biden in his worldview, based on what you just laid out. Well, not on the domestic side, <laughs> but on, on this issue that we were discussing today, we're generally in the same place. So again, those were the words of Senator Mitch McConnell. Clearly, part of the Republican Party is on the same page as President Biden and the, 
Democratic Party. So hopefully they can find a way to move forward some funding bills. We will just have to see. I do think they're going to try. I've seen some media reports that they may try to add in some border funding. And that might get some of the MAGA Republican diehards who are opposed to aid to Ukraine to maybe get on board. We'll just have to see. But this is clearly a dire situation. And it's important they make this happen. So let's hope that they can find a way to work together and somehow get through a spending bill that also keeps the federal government open. So let's move from that to Israel and what they are currently facing. Now, if you guys caught last week's episode, you know I made a pretty bold prediction. And I always get nervous making predictions like that. I said last week, guys, I am not convinced a ground invasion is going to happen. Everywhere you read said it was imminent, that 300,000 reservists were called up, all these troops were on the exterior or the border of Gaza, that small strip of land on the western part of Israel that is so jam-packed with Palestinians. And I said last week, guys, I'm not convinced this is going to happen. Well, sure enough, thankfully, both for the people there and also for my small reputation, it has not happened yet. So I'm very glad that I made the very bold prediction that I did not think it was about to happen like everywhere else was screaming in the media. I laid out a few reasons last week, and a lot of those reasons have really been better stated and explained and elaborated on since then. And much of what I was basing my comments on were just basic instincts that I had regarding military history and strategy and just basically my gut. I thought it'd be devastating and a really bad idea, but I didn't have it worded that well. You guys know what I said last week. If you didn't, you can go listen. Since then, though, Some really thoughtful, well-spoken people have laid out some of the reasons why Israel should really think long and hard about what they're saying they want to do. Clearly, it's been reported that President Biden helped stall the invasion to date. He helped slow it down when he visited Israel. There are clearly a couple hundred hostages still inside Gaza that are at serious risk. There have been two different releases of hostages. Both of them were sets of two, so there have been four people released. But we know there are more hostages there, and we know there's some serious danger that Israel faces. But we also know that Israel was savagely attacked. A lot of barbarity happened, and emotions are running very high. And many in Israel do want this ground invasion to happen, but there are... As I said last week, some calmer voices trying to say to the Israeli defense establishment and to the Israeli leaders, think about what you're about to do. And along those lines of thinking, let me share two really well-stated and written expressions about what could possibly happen. Now, the first one comes from the New York Times and Tom Friedman. If 
you don't know Tom Friedman, he's been writing for a couple of decades. A very well-known and distinguished foreign policy analyst and sometimes writes about economics, but has written tons of books. Just a, a big name person. Let me read just part of what his column says and what he believes. And he says, so let me put this in as stark and clear language as I can, because the hour is late. I believe that if Israel rushes headlong into Gaza now to destroy Hamas and does so without expressing a clear commitment to seek a two-state solution with the Palestinian Authority and end Jewish settlements deep in the West Bank, it will be making a grave mistake that will be devastating for Israeli interests and American interests. It could trigger it could trigger a global conflagration and explode the entire pro-American alliance structure that the United States has built in the region since Henry Kissinger engineered the end of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. I am talking about the Camp David Peace Treaty, the Oslo Peace Accords, the Abraham Accords, and the possible normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, the whole thing could go up in flames. This is not about whether Israel has the right to retaliate against Hamas for the savage barbarism it inflicted on Israeli men, women, babies, and grandparents. It surely does. This is about doing it the right way, the way that does not play into the hands of Hamas, Iran, and Russia. So that was the first piece. Again, that was about Tom Friedman. And that was probably written about three days before the second piece that I wanted to read, which comes from Ian Bremmer. He's obviously a pretty well-known columnist and foreign policy person as well. He's written for numerous publications, puts out his own, his own stuff as well, primarily in G-Zero media. But again, these words from Ian Bremmer. So Tom Friedman puts out his column a few days before this article by Ian Bremmer. And Tom Friedman, of course, catches flack who, from people who are like, how dare you be against Israel? How dare you not want to support Israel's right to go in and avenge this? And, you know, on and on. You know the arguments. Of course, interestingly, Tom Friedman is actually Jewish and attended a Hebrew school five days a week until his bar mitzvah. So he had a lot of credibility to write this column that he did. And after some back and forth as things seemed to go on social media, increasingly people were like, you know, he's got a good point. Israel needs to be careful. He wrote these words not because he's pro-Palestinian or anti-Israel, but because he's worried about this country that he cares a lot about, that country being Israel, obviously. And so with a little bit of time that passed, those few days, and with that initial pretty serious drive, so to speak, into this dangerous topic having been launched by Tom Friedman, Ian Bremmer follows it up with an even stronger piece. And I want to read just a bit from that as well, because it just really, it I couldn't say this any better. Again, these are the words 
of Ian Bremmer. He writes for G Zero Media. And I quote, This long-anticipated offensive has thus far been delayed by international efforts to reduce the humanitarian impact, ongoing negotiations to release hostages, divisions within Israel's unity government about what to do next, and pressure from Washington to wait until both Israel and the U.S. are prepared to handle any resulting escalation, but the invasion will take place in short order. This will be a terrible mistake for Israel, graver even than the one the U.S. committed in Iraq and Afghanistan in response to 9-11. To be clear, I fully understand and share Israel's desire to destroy the terrorist organization that is Hamas. Israel has every right to defend itself and retaliate against attacks on its citizens. But just because this objective is understandable, legitimate, and desirable, it does not mean it is a feasible or strategically wise decision. A large-scale invasion of Gaza would be counterproductive. There is no military way for Israel to fully destroy Hamas without killing tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians and radicalizing even more. An invasion of Gaza would be a humanitarian, moral, and strategic catastrophe, not only inflicting unfathomable human cost, but also badly undermining Israel's long-term security. Nothing it can hope to achieve beyond satisfying Israeli demands for revenge can outweigh the harm it is certain to do, even in the best of scenarios. Because Hamas's military infrastructure is embedded in civilian areas and its 30 to 40,000 fighters hide among non-combatants, any attempt to destroy Hamas in Gaza would have to be conducted block by block, building by building, and door by door in one of the most densely populated and urbanized environments in the world. Amid a uniquely hostile population, and against a highly motivated enemy that has been preparing for this fight on their home turf for a long time. Side note, by the way, you guys know last week I talked about how Hamas would have many of these buildings set up for demolition. So besides that tunnel system, I mentioned last week as Israeli soldiers go in, many of these buildings are going to explode and bury Israeli soldiers in rubble, assuming they survive the blast. But So that's what he's talking about there. I'll continue reading what he says. This slow and grinding urban battle would be tactically harder to prosecute and costlier in terms of Israeli military casualties than Fallujah was for the U.S. Even if Israel takes every precaution to protect civilian lives, many innocent people will inevitably be killed, injured, and displaced. Before October 7th, so this is, what, two and a half weeks or so ago. So he says, before October 7th, 50% of Palestinians in Gaza faced chronic hunger and 90% didn't have access to clean water. Under siege and without a way out of the territory, this will only get worse for them. The death and suffering of innocent civilians will in turn radicalize many more Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere, increasing support for Hamas and multiplying the threat to Israel. 
At a minimum, widespread anti-Israel demonstrations will occur across the region, with terrorist attacks more likely. More social unrest will also emerge in the West Bank, Egypt, and Jordan, potentially destabilizing the broader region and sparking wider conflict beyond Gaza, with retaliation from Hezbollah in Lebanon or even Iran. So I'll stop reading there the the column that he wrote, but that is so perfectly stated by him on what the dangers are of an invasion of Gaza. And there have been lots of media out there that have talked about that even if this thing is launched, this ground war, that Israel faces a ticking clock because the humanitarian conditions are so bad in Gaza that any kind of major invasion with water cut off, there's no fuel going in there, the hospitals are only barely even being maintained right now and opened by critically short staff, the images will be horrible. And while some of them will be propaganda, as Hamas has done, and they're very good at, many of them will be accurate, and it will not be a good thing for Israel. It will make Israel look horrible. And so that's what people are increasingly concerned about, is how does Israel find a way to conduct some kind of military operation? How do they find a way to dismantle Hamas without suffering worldwide outrage and possibly widening the war? That's the big question. And there are no easy answers a lot of people say you've got to have a government ready to... I mean, does Israel go in and do they prop up a government? Do they invite in the Palestinian Authority, which has not shown great ability to even rule in the areas that it rules? No one's really sure. There are no easy answers. But for the moment, the invasion has been held up because I think the gravity of the situation is sinking in for the Israelis. And as some of the places have, I've read so much about what this might look like. And some of the articles have said that if Israel were to go in for a month or two or, or longer and end up having, with the world outrage building against it, pull out, that in many ways it would be seen as an Israeli defeat because Hamas will have bloodied Israel's nose. Israel will have retaliated Israel will have lost many, many good soldiers in the process, and they will have proven that they can't even really, truly destroy Hamas or efficiently operate against them. They will have to withdraw, and they will, will, will withdraw with more world opinion against Israel than there was in the beginning, which ultimately means it was a victory for Hamas. So those are the dangers that Israel faces as it tries to decide how it's going to react. I want to cover two more things on the Israel situation, and then we will get into some Ukraine news. I got a couple of items from there. The first thing I want to cover with Israel is how is the Arab world in the Middle East reacting to Israel in this crisis? And believe it or not, surprisingly, it's not how you expect and this time, this crisis is different for Israel and the entire Arab world is not united against them. 
things have definitely changed. And in fact, The Economist wrote an article that just kind of goes through each of the countries in the Middle East. I just want to hit some of these and why things are different. So, let's go first to... We'll go to what some Americans call Qatar. The correct pronunciation is Qatar. So, Qatar is in a vulnerable situation. It's obviously, we have some defense installations there. It's an American ally, but it is a Middle Eastern country that supports Hamas. And in fact, it actually donates up to $30 million a month to Hamas. So Qatar realizes it's very vulnerable. Some indications appear to be that Qatar is scrambling to show that it can still be useful to America. They're trying to do damage control because I don't think they realize that Hamas was going to go on this murderous rampage. And so Qatar has been working hard to help free some of the 200 hostages and to broker deals. And in the past, Qatar has always said, hey, we want to keep relations with with Hamas so that we can be a broker. And so they're trying their best to do some damage control, and to help release hostages. So let's go to the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. The UAE was the first Gulf state in 2020, three years ago, to recognize Israel. And the UAE has taken a different stance. Initially, its initial statement after the attack by Hamas was one of sympathy with Israel, They've done condolence calls, and these are things that would never have happened even 15 years ago or so. Uh, The UAE doesn't like political Islam. They see it as a threat. And so in private, they are scathing in their criticism of Hamas, according to The Economist, according to their best sources in the Middle East. So this is The Economist talking. Now, let's go to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is obviously the big player the big country. They are the ones that are trying to balance their against their rival Iran. There's two different religions, Saudi Arabia versus Iran, and they're also two huge regional powers that are competing in several different I almost want to use the word conflicts. There's definitely fighting happening in Yemen. There have been a few other skirmishes, but most of those have ended. But Saudi Arabia and Iran are the two power players in the Middle East that have been jockeying for position and aligning with other allies against each other for years now. They are huge, huge rivals and enemies. Iran is mostly backed by Russia. Saudi Arabia has, in the past at least, mostly been backed by the U.S., although there are strains in that relationship, as we've covered here and as has been in the news for months and months, if not years, with the head of Saudi Arabia and some of the tension between him and President Biden and our State Department because of some of the human rights, horrible human rights violations that Saudi Arabia has had. Putting all of that to the side for the moment, though, according to The Economist, Saudi Arabia is trying to go down the middle, trying to chart a middle course. It has tried to make a few statements that makes the Arab world happy. It's also made some statements that has continued to support to support Israel and I'm just glancing at the article here so I apologize 
the short of it is, is that Saudi Arabia, though, is wanting to continue to keep some kind, they're, they're trying to keep some kind of relationship, at least off the record, with Israel, and they're also trying to make things less tense with Iran. Now, obviously, Iran backs Hamas, and so they're trying to keep that halfway, you know, on the level. So the Economist writes this, three conclusions can be drawn about Saudi Arabia's, Saudi Arabia's intentions. First, it wants to undercut Hamas. Second, it wants to avoid a broader conflict confrontation with Iran. And it talks just a bit about some possible meetings, etc. And then lastly, Saudi Arabia is not shutting the door on normalization with Israel. America spent much of this year pushing for a deal that would have seen the Saudis recognize Israel, which of course would be a first and a huge deal. So continuing from the article, the kingdom, which is Saudi Arabia, wants a defense pact with America in return. The Saudis had seemed content to push for token gestures toward the Palestinians, not an end to the occupation, merely to make it less painful. Now, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, and the country's de facto ruler has called for the creation of a Palestinian state along the region's pre-1967 borders. Talks with Israel will continue, albeit more quietly than before, but the price for Israel will now be higher. And then the Economist kind of ends that article by saying, much now depends on the nature of Israel's looming ground invasion of Gaza. As the civilian death toll rises, the Gulf states will come under growing pressure at home and across the Arab Arab world to condemn Israel and sever ties. So, and then it just says, still, one thing the Gulf leaders can all agree on, they want the war to end. So, Obviously, this situation is putting a lot of pressure on a lot of countries besides just Israel. And that is one of the things that Israel is facing, is that they have made significant progress in the Middle East with Arab countries that used to hate them, that used to fund terrorism against them. Israel has made incredible progress. And so they do not want to have setbacks with countries like Saudi Arabia. They don't want to have a huge setback with the UAE. And so they're in a bit of a pickle on how to react, and a lot of damage can be done to the progress they've made. And that's something they're going to have to balance. Now, the final story regarding the Israel situation and that increasing tension, clearly the U.S. is moving forces in the area. They've moved two carrier groups. They're moving some anti-air missile groups, battalions to the area. But it has come out, I'm recording this on Wednesday, that there have been a number of drone and rocket attacks on coalition military bases in Iraq and Syria. And it just came out on CNN as I'm recording this at about, this happened at about 9.30. I'm recording this at 10.30 p.m. on Wednesday night that a total of 21 U.S. service members reported minor injuries as a result of drone and rocket attacks in the past week. And so there was a spokesman, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder. He said between October 17th and 18th, 
21 U.S. personnel received minor injuries due to drone attacks at Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. And then there's also a base a garrison in Syria. He said all members have returned to duty. Uh, the defense officials say that they all personnel will continue to be monitored and that if any additional ones report symptoms, they will report that. So it sounds like this was probably some type of concussive or explosion explosion type injury from nearby explosions of rockets or drones. So we'll keep that posted. I think the U.S. has done a good job of not overreacting. And this will be the real balancing act for the U.S. as it shifts its defense posture a bit to keep Iran in check. We've talked about in lots of previous episodes small things Iran has been doing where they've tried to seize ships and have and tried to seize additional ships as they've done various small things to antagonize the U.S. Iran will use proxy groups to attack American bases, trying to do some type of escalation. But I think they're going to do it in a way that makes keeps their hands clean so that they have plausible deniability. Because as I said last week, I do not believe Iran wants this to blow up into a major conflict. They have made too much progress in their production toward some type of nuclear capability. They're not there yet, but if they get into any kind of real shooting war with Israel or the U.S. at this point, the facilities that they have would be bombed just to oblivion. And I think they know that. And so I think even though they have ways that they could try to hurt us pretty badly with ballistic missiles, as they've launched ballistic missiles at us in the past, back when President Trump was in office, we've had that happen. They do have ways to hurt the U.S. and the, and the Saudis and probably Israel, although Israel's air defense is really good. I don't think they want the combined effect of what would happen. They're just, in my opinion, not positioned for war at this time. And so I don't think they want that. But again, some of these groups, they want to keep their hands clean. But at the same time, they are playing with fire because they have armed and trained many of these groups and many of these groups are angry as they watch Israel bombing Gaza. And so even without orders, some of these groups that Iran has armed may act without Iranian authority or permission. And again, they could get permission to do some small things so that Iran can stoke up its support inside Iran for what they're doing against the evil U.S. and those terrible people in Israel. So... That's the short of that situation. Let's move to Ukraine briefly. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show, you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber. For $5 per month, you can help us sustain, grow, and improve the show. Again, you can help support the show for only $5 per month. Come and go as you wish. You can find all the details on my Substack page. That's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or just find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. Now, in Ukraine, there's been two big pieces of news in the past week. 
The first is, and this is almost mind-boggling, but Russia has been trying to launch a major offensive near a small town called Avdivka. It's not even really worth posting a screenshot of where it's happening because they've made no progress. And they have been losing massive amounts of men, infantry fighting vehicles, and tanks. Some sources say that in the past few days, they've lost as much as as a brigade. In fact, if you just Google Abdivka on any social media platform, you will see so many videos of large losses of tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. It's crazy how many mines they are hitting that the Ukrainians have laid, and as Ukraine, I assume, has positioned more forces nearby. Each attempt, you know, maybe Russia had a little bit of an element of surprise a few days ago, but each attempt of late has gotten even uglier and bloodier for the Russians. They have lost thousands of men in the past few days. Some of the highest losses that Russia has had, perhaps since the very beginning when they initially invaded more than a year ago, obviously, toward Kiev. These are very high casualty attacks in in an area that, again, they've gained no ground by doing this. And these casualties are even larger than what was happening during the human wave attacks around Bakhmut, where they were successfully moving forward. But those did not have as high a concentration of armor and fighting vehicles. So these losses, if you look at them on social media... They're not just losing men that they can replace. Of course, as you know, if you've listened to the show very long, these conscripts they've been putting into service, pressing into service, most of them get very little training. And by very little, I mean like less than a week or two. They might fire a few rounds through an AK, and they're basically pushed down to the front with almost no training. But it's interesting because these attacks have involved, as I said, armor and infantry fighting vehicles, and they're losing them in high numbers. So they tried, I guess, a surprise counterpunch or something. Doesn't appear to be working. I'm surprised they're still trying, but after several days, they have still been trying. They've had absolutely no success. So that's the first part. Now, the second part of news, and I should say on that first fighting around Avdivka, it's mostly in the area where we've talked quite a bit about the Zaporizhia area. It's basically in that area, a little to the east of it, but basically in that area. Now you need to reposition in your mind where I'm about to describe. Go away from the Zaporizhia area, go west, all the way toward the Crimean Peninsula. And in that area is a place called Kherson. Hasn't been in the news a ton past few months. Ukraine has taken part of Kherson, across the river, and so for the better part of months, the Dnipro River has separated Russia from Ukrainian forces. So Russia is still on illegally occupied Ukrainian land on part of the bank. As you're looking at it, it's technically the south as you're looking at it, just a map. People get really big into which side of the river it is, and there's I could talk about that, but let's not even go there. Ukraine needs to push south. 
in order to get through the rest of Kherson and get down to the Crimean Peninsula so that they can regain their territory. About a month or two ago, there was an there was quite a bit of talk of some raids where Ukraine would send across some forces and eventually they would get pushed back after some raids or probing actions. But in the past week, this is the most serious amphibious operations that have happened to date. And there are actually Ukrainian Marines about one mile in across from the Dnipro River in that Kherson region. Now, there aren't many Russian troops in the area, according to the Kiev Post. So right now, Russia is mostly just using artillery and bombs to try to drive them out. But for the moment, at least, the Ukrainian Marines are not leaving. They are dug in. So Russia is going to have to try to do something. As we've talked about so many times, the Russian forces are stretched very thin across that 600-mile front of defensive lines. They almost have no reserves. So for the moment, the Ukrainian Marines have moved toward three communities. Again, it's on the south or what some people call the left bank of the Dnipro River. I can't pronounce the three towns or communities that they're around, but... Clearly, pretty big news for Ukraine, because if Russia cannot drive them back, then Ukraine will probably seriously reinforce with additional elements and armor this penetration, this new drive across the Dnipro River. And if they can get a a serious foothold, then Russia is going to be in trouble, because this will be... Obviously, Ukraine's been trying to pierce some of those Russian lines in the Zaporizhia area. They've been trying to pierce them in the north around Bakhmut as they encircle Bakhmut. But if they can get across the Dnipro River, it's another way to get across a a serious barrier, a formidable barrier, and actually get at the enemy. And at least for several days now, they have done so. And they are holding ground. So we'll see what happens. I'll keep you posted on that next week. All right, so let's move to the final part of the show, the motivation and wisdom section. I share these each week because I think each of us could use a few words of encouragement. So we'll keep it short since the show's obviously run long. It's funny, every week I try to make the show a little shorter, and every week I seem it feels like I'm always at about 50-something minutes before I get to this part. But... Here's the first one. A single lamp may light hundreds of thousands of lamps without itself being diminished. It's good, isn't it? You could share your light without running out. Again, a single lamp may light hundreds of thousands of lamps without itself being diminished. It's a good one. Next one. It's a quote from Michael Jordan. I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something but I can't accept not trying. It's a good one. Again, it's I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something, but I can't accept not trying. Next one. Fall in love with the grind. Again, fall in love with the grind. You know, speaking of my ambition earlier, that's one of those, if you don't worry about the results and you just have a good time along the way, you're probably going to be a lot happier anyway. So again, fall in love with the grind. Next one, do it because nobody believed in you. Again, do it because nobody believed in you. 
This next one is about discipline. Success is the sum of small efforts repeated day in and day out. Again, success is the sum of small efforts repeated day in and day out. Next one, pain really changes you. Again, pain really changes you. I did once read somewhere that pain is like the one thing. The only good thing about pain is it does force change. So if you're going through some pain right now, there there sometimes is good that results from it. So pain does force change sometimes. This is a good one, especially in regards to social media. Normalize losing arguments on purpose so you can go on with your day. (laughs) Normalize losing arguments on purpose so you can go on with your day. And then the next one, always remember to fall asleep with a dream and wake up with a purpose. Again, always remember to fall asleep with a dream and wake up with a purpose. It's pretty good. Let's do couple here from the Bible. The first one is, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Again, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. That's from uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Here's a second one. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They exult in your righteousness. It's from Psalms chapter chapter 89, verses 15 and 16. Again, it is, Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, For they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They exult in your righteousness. And then I always like to lead, I always end with the same one every week, week, which is be the reason someone smiles, be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. It's a great one to end with. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. If you want, you can email me. If you want to share on social media, comment on social media, I try to monitor those. Be glad to answer anything you got to say, any questions, etc. Thanks so much for joining us. Apologize again that it was, again, almost a one-hour show, but really appreciate everyone who joined with us tonight, and I hope you got something from it. I will see you guys next week.